I know what movie that is? Hacksaw Ridge. Definitely not a kid's movie. Don't take your kids to it. But it's a true story. And I saw that scene, uh, this, what, day before Thanksgiving. We watched the movie Tuesday, two days before. And I saw that scene, and I, that's how I feel in relationship to some of you, that you are overrun by enemies. And we want to be rescuers in your life. We love you too much to let you um, be taken by the enemy of a bad marriage, a bad habit, um, something that you're hung up on, maybe even within uh, the struggles of our political world, some hang up that you have. We, we don't want you to be overrun by the enemies that you face. And this is what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who's been rescued, but they haven't been simply been rescued to be rescued. They've been rescued to be a rescuer. And so we, as a church, want to be an encouragement to you in what you're going through. You don't have to be in this place that you're at. You can, you can grow, you can move, you can change. There is freedom. Some of you have been enslaved by an addiction or a struggle for so long, you can't see yourself outside of it. We see that in counseling a lot. They've been in abusive relationship or an abusive habit or an abusive uh, workplace or family, and they can't see themselves outside of that. It actually becomes part of their identity. But here's the truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from this dynamic of sin and death that you live in. Amen? Amen. That is precious there. I saw this movie about army medic Desmond Doss, who um, was one of the greatest American heroes of World War II who never fired a shot. He was a conscientious objector, a pacifist, a Seventh-day Adventist who did not believe in, in violence, but he wanted to help his country. And so he went to the Battle of Okinawa as a medic, and he is the first American hero to receive the Medal of Honor without ever having picked up a gun. Isn't that amazing? And the story, I won't create any spoilers. We win, by the way, the Battle of Okinawa, just to let you know case that is too much of a spoiler. But they had to take a ridge called Hacksaw Ridge. And wave after wave of American soldiers, every time they got up on top of the ridge, they would be overtaken, all right? They would be overrun by the enemy. In the scene that you just saw, Desmond dragged Sergeant Howell uh, while the enemy forces are closing in. Some of you are overrun. Some of you aren't overrun yet. But the enemy forces a perversion of slander, of, of a seed of bitterness from something that already happened this last week at your Thanksgiving dinner, right? The enemy is coming in. And we want to be uh, for you as a church. God wants to be, his spirit wants to be, his son wants to be an eagle that swoops in and saves. He wants to be a fresh wind that blows into your life and creates a harvest of love and hope. He wants to be a fire that comes in and sets on fire the course of your life for him. Now, here's the text today. Hosea chapter 8 talks about how those three things could go the other direction. How an eagle, a wind, and a fire could be a bad thing. We, we, want, we want the protection of the eagle. We don't want the eagle who is the bird of prey. We want the wind of harvest. We don't want the whirlwind, the tornado of situations that blow away our false hopes. We don't want it, but we need it. We need our false hopes blown away. Our fires, we want the redeeming fire, not the consuming fire. Amen? Hosea chapter 8 is a watershed text. It is, in many ways, the Hacksaw Ridge of Israel. The only problem here, we win the battle of Okinawa, they don't win this. They're never able to take this hill, right? So this is a seismic rift of some false leaders, false hopes, and false securities, and they don't win. They are never, never able. They are overrun by the enemy. They never are able to move on to this place of victory. Uh, there, there's two reactions to the book of Hosea. One is you look at it, you see your life, and in repentance you say, of course, or you say, off course. 
to use those military terms, you either look at a text like this and you say, overrun, or you say, overwatch. Now, in military doctrine, overwatch is you send a small group, an advanced smaller unit than the one advancing to get a position where the soldiers of this small unit can see the positions of, in the front of the larger units. And in the case of the movie, right, Okinawa had these army officer, army people hitting the hill, but they also had the Navy out in the, in the, in the water shooting bombs as they called in those. As the overwatch called in the bombs, they were able to soften up the enemy. It's how we really won the War of the Pacific. They, the army, the, the Navy boats would soften up the beachhead and the beachhead would extend and extend. And this is how it looks in the Christian's life. Once the Holy Spirit, through conversion, gets a beachhead in your life, the things about you that need to be changed that you can't even fathom how they'll be changed, God softens you up through, through times of overrun and overwatch, right? And the beachhead grows larger and larger. So the question of today is, are we going to learn from Israel's mistakes or are we not? I think we all struggle with this. We all struggle with our own Hacksaw Ridge. But here's the truth. Israel lost it. This is uh, an influential event. It is one of the most mentioned influential events behind Hosea chapter 8. Uh, You might think of Exodus and the Exodus out of Egypt being mentioned so often. I would say second to that, this one is mentioned more often. It is a watershed event, and it's about a man, a king, by the name of Jeroboam the first. Right? So Jeroboam is the king of the north who begins to Hosea, who's the king at the time of Hosea. So from Jeroboam the first all the way through to Jeroboam the second and then to Hosea, they have no good kings. Not a single king in the north followed the Lord. This isn't Jeroboam the second. This is Jeroboam the first. You go from Solomon, right? You go Saul, David, Solomon. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. He splits in his, his in unfaithfulness. The nation splits. He takes the two tribes of the south, Jeroboam the first takes the ten tribes of the north. And it is said over and over and over that the kings of the north followed in the sins of Jeroboam the first. So what is that watershed event? You know what a watershed is, don't you? It's not, a, not, a, not an outhouse. A watershed is a place like a roof pitch that when the water hits it, it sheds the water. It's the continental divide that when the water hits America, water goes to the east or the west of that continental divide. The watershed event in Israel's history that's mentioned often enough to be number two to the Exodus is the sin of Jeroboam. Have you ever taught your kids the story of the sin of Jeroboam? All right, it's found in 1 Kings chapter 12. We're going to learn it today. Before we get there, let's look at what happens here. There's no books about the sin of Jeroboam. There's no movie, so you got to learn it. And then I want you to teach this to your kids. Verse 1 of chapter 8, Hosea 8 verse 1. Put the trumpet to your lips, God tells the nation. What's a trumpet? Here it's the word shofar. It was used to call the troops, right, for war to go in or come out, to call assembly. It was to begin special occasions. But in this case, it's to sound an alarm. The third purpose of the shofar is to sound an alarm. The trumpet of alarm is because the enemy is approaching. Assyria is about to take out the ten tribes of the north. And God is giving them a chance to repent. So Hosea uses in this text a number of familiar images. Look at the first one. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. He is going to call them in an alarm to to deal with their false leaders, to deal with their false hopes and their false securities. And the first image is that of an eagle. An eagle is the king of the birds, like the lion is the king of the beasts. The eagle has no natural born enemy. Did you know that? I have a biology degree from Texas A&M University. You can trust me, right? An eagle has no natural born enemy, all right? When the eagle swoops down, right, and you have a little, little kitty cat, the cat is gone, right? When the eagle swoops down, your gerbil is gone. Your little chihuahua is gone. And you hear the sound, and then you look around, and all you see is your chihuahua's collar just kind of, all right? That's the idea of the swift eagle. It comes silently like a, 
like a SEAL team. The Assyrian army is coming, not because God's unfaithful. The Assyrian army is coming because Israel is unfaithful. Look at what their unfaithfulness is described at here. Verse 1, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Let me stop here. Um, I'm assuming way too much when we walk through the book of Hosea to contextualize this. Let me give you an old and a New Testament primer. Uh, There is a, you have a Bible, hopefully you brought one, or you got your smartphone out. The Bible, it's 66 books, are broken into an Old Testament and a New Testament. We might say an old deal arrangement and a new deal. The old deal was that God would treat, this is how book of Romans talks about it, Hebrews as well. Book of Hebrews says that the, the law was like a dorm mother. You needed a nanny. And so God gave 613 rules. Right now, he congealed all that down into 10, right? The first four had to do with your relationship with God. Commandment number five, from 613 down to 10, commandment number five says that the relationship between the moms and the dads and their kids is kind of the linchpin because that's the mechanism by which you're to teach about who God is and what he wants and what he doesn't want. So the first four commandments is about God. The fifth one is about moms and dads teaching their kids and kids honoring their moms and dads. Commandment, uh, the next five are about how you're to treat your neighbor, right? So commandment number one, have no other gods. In other words, don't be polytheistic. Don't be polygamous when it comes in your marriage to God. So don't add to God. Commandment number two, don't take away from God, right? You can't, you can't take an, a, an object out of wood or wax and carve something that symbolizes who God is, that will minimize him. And we humans are, we have idol-making factories in our hearts. We like to bring God down to something we can manage and control. God says, don't do it. Commandment number three says, respect his name because his reputation is huge because you're to be a witness. First and foremost, you're to be a witness that he is creator God. And so commandment number four, you obey the Sabbath, right? Because he created and he sat down and guess what? He can, he can, Uh, handle your problems. He is Lord Sabaoth. He is able as an army of of his hosts, he is able to handle whatever you have in your life. So you can rest in your anxieties, all right? We do that by resting and not thinking that we got to get it all done in seven days. You can get it done in six, all right? Commandment number five had to do with you take all that language and you get the parents teaching to the kids and the kids honoring and obeying the parents. Commandment number five is you teach it to your kids. Commandment number six is you take care of your brother's possessions. Then you take care of your brother's mate. Then you don't slander or lie against your brother. Then you protect his life. And oh, by the way, don't foster the very thing in your heart that leads to all those things. You don't covet. You don't want his stuff. You be content with what God gave you. Now, that was the Old Testament. Those laws were given to the leaders, the priests and the pastors, to teach to the parents, and the parents were to teach it to their kids, and they weren't to drop the baton. How many generations does it take to drop the baton of faith? One. The nation could be as crazy as it wanted to be as long as kings and priests and prophets called them to turn back. Right? That's why God gave them sacrifices, and God gave them Yom Kippur. The Old Testament never said you would keep the law. It said you wouldn't keep the law perfectly, but you are to always be apologetic. You're to always be sorry and to turn. Prophets and priests were given to God because they couldn't, given by God because the people couldn't keep it right and perfectly, to call them back. So prophets and priests said, if you go this way, you get blessings. If you go this way, you get curses. This is how you treat your kids. This is how you Hopefully, if you're a good parent or you were a good parent, you establish roles, responsibilities, boundaries. You establish consequences. If you go out of bounds, this happens. If you go in bounds, this happens. Here's your chores, or as we like to say, our expectations. Here's the things you're to do, and when you do them, you get this or you get that. That's how you treat a young child. And Israel is a young child. And so God gave them that. It was a bilateral covenant. He would bestow Right? If you did this, he would bestow the perks of the covenant. If you did this, you got the curses. One day, though, he said, one will come, and he will be the holy one of Israel. He will be the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, and he will put the law of God not on stones, right, but on flesh, on the heart. 
and then inviting, as King Jesus comes, inviting all, all nations to enjoy the blessings of Israel and to come in to this final kingdom. Now, to me, that sounds very legitimate, very reasonable as a system. That is a, a reasonable system. Only one problem, though. Israel didn't do it. The prophets didn't do it. The kings didn't do it. The priests didn't do it. And their disobedience filtered down to the nations around them. And they actually led the other nations to perversion and murder. Okay, but in the New Testament, we see a new deal. That God, knowing that you wouldn't do it perfect and that Israel didn't follow it at all, really. They didn't keep up with it at all. God comes and does it himself. He invades the planet in baby Jesus and Jesus grows and lives a perfect life. The reason we don't nail baby Jesus to the cross is Jesus has to live 33 years as the perfect prophet, the perfect king, the perfect priest so that you and I don't have to be perfect. And then on top of that, he ascends. Why do we need Jesus ascending? We need Jesus ascending because we need the spirit descending. And the spirit of God ushers in a spiritual bar mitzvah where you're no longer a child, you're an adult in faith. And you don't need laws written on stone because you have the spirit of the law of life. You have life inside. The lawgiver became the law keeper so that the lawbreaker would be set free. The law keeper became the lawbreaker by dying on the cross so that the lawbreaker, you and I, would be set free. Once and for all, he died on the cross so that you and I don't have to die. Once and for all, he lived a perfect life so that you and I, in the finality of it, don't have to live perfect. We rest in Christ. One-sided, unilateral deal. Now, that's good news. Let's go back to the Old Covenant, though. How does the Old Testament deal with false leaders when the whole nation goes south? Politically, when they go south. Religiously, when they go south, there was, there was one final step. In the Old Testament, the final step, when the leaders and the parents and everybody go south, you kick them off of the property of God. They get kicked out. What do you do with an idiot high school kid who continues to stiffen your neck, their neck at you? You kick them out of your house and you say, go get a job. You are out from underneath the commonwealth provision of the family. If you're not going to obey, if you're not going to follow, then you need to go try it on your own. Right? That's what you do. You say you're going to be a part, you can't be a part of the commonwealth of your parents. You, you don't want the authority, then you don't get the provision and you kick them out. That's what you do until there is that coming of age and they come to their senses and they recognize they got to grow up. Right? You can't keep going that direction. Good parents do that. Here's a good parent. Now, the swift eagle is meant to make you ask the question, what kind of eagle is this? Is this an eagle of protection or is this an eagle of punishment? Is this an eagle of blessing or an eagle of prey? There's your blanks in your handout. Exodus sees it as an eagle of protection. Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings. Isaiah 40 says the same thing. Here, it's an eagle of punishment. Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's an eagle of punishment. Listen to verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as eagles swoop down, as a nation whose language you shall not understand, they will take you out. They chose that one. They chose that eagle. Israel's destruction is attributed to one sin. Did you catch it? Israel transgressed the covenant. Now, what does that mean? Transgress means, in their language, means to step over a boundary. They didn't have barbed wire fences. They set up boundaries that everybody could see, and they were obvious. And when you stepped over those boundaries, when you stepped across uh, a city or a stream or some other definable boundary, you transgressed. Now, here, transgressions attract covenant curses in the old deal. In the old deal, the curses come when you transgress. Ironically, many people see the name Hebrew as coming from a, an ancient, uh, not from Aramaic or Hebrew, but from a foreign language, Aparu, which means crooked or troublemaker, Better yet, I believe the word Hebrew comes from this word, to transgress. Okay, now, Hebrew, the word Hebrew means to cross over. Now, in a mind of a Jew, that's a positive thing, not a derogatory thing. 
What did Moses do? Moses led the people out of Egypt and they crossed over the, come on, basic, crossed over the, crossed over the Red Sea. Thank you. Woo, that's tough. Joshua leads the people out of the wilderness, crosses over the Jordan River. Okay, Abraham, at the beginning of the story, crosses over, I won't ask you this one, the Euphrates to come into the promised land. Crossing over as a verbal idea was something very positive. It had a positive force in the Hebrew understanding. But here the verb usually has such a positive connotation, has the idea of trespassing or violation. So think about that. Instead of an act of faith, like crossing over a river at flood stage, that affirmed covenant relationship, Israel had crossed over in the wrong direction. That's convicting. Now, he gives two explanations of what that looks like. Look in verse 1. Because they have transgressed my law, my covenant, and rebelled. Rebel has a military idea. right? Covenant transgression is an equivalent to an act of rebellion. Now, skip verse 2. Look at verse 3. Israel has rejected the good. So the, the central accusation is expressed in this way, too. They've rejected the good. Now, what is this addressing? Is this personification of God, that he's the good one? No, I think this is the covenant perks. You've, you've rebelled against God and his covenant, and you've actually rejected what he considers as good. You could say it's bad. You say you don't want it. So that's, I think it carries the idea of rejecting covenant blessing. Now, look at their sandwich between these two explanations is Israel's answer. Look at their plea. They cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. Meaning our identity should keep this from happening. What are they crying? They're crying sanctuary. You know, most, if you like law and order type shows, most law and orders have this kind of scene where the rich kid gets caught and his daddy is big in the city and he goes before the detective and they're in the room and they're, he's like, lawyer, lawyer, lawyer. And then the rich daddy with his rich lawyer comes in and they they don't even let anything happen. They just, he gets off scot-free. But verse three, being a Jew won't help you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. God in the law says you, you will come up one way, but you will go down seven ways. God did what God said he would. He, he acknowledged it at Sinai. He said, here's the blessings, here's the curses, and the people rejected it, and he put them in wilderness and time out for 40 years. Then they come up to, and we study this in the book of Joshua, they come up to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal in the book of Deuteronomy. He gives them the curses and the blessings, and I quote their answer when they say, this is the deal, they say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And did they do it? No, 40 years in the wilderness did not correct their hearts. Only heart surgery through the Spirit could do that. Right? So they rebelled, and here comes Assyria. Early on in Mount Sinai, they rebelled, and here comes the wilderness. They rebelled in Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim from then on, and here comes Assyria. Whew, so glad our country has learned from this and continues to fear the Lord. <laughs> Verse 4, they have illegitimate rulers. If God's not going to be their sugar daddy, then they're going to go get some charismatic leader who will make them great again. They have set up kings, but not by me. They're going to get a blessing another way. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. In other words, I, I don't know these people. Instead of repenting, they turn to politicians. We simply are just going to get some new charismatic leaders, not one that God sends a Samuel to to choose. Right? We're, the last four of the northern kings out of the 20 were, were brought on new leadership by assassination. Every one of them was killed, murdered, assassinated because they didn't like their politics, so they went and got a new one, a new leader. A special interest group would come in and, and assassinate them and then bring in their special interest leader. These illegal dynasties eventually produced, look, verse 4, illegal religion. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves. Get a king that would provide a different source of blessing. How about fertility idols, a blessing apart from God? Further proof that they had rejected the Lord. It leads to this punishment, that they might be cut off. You know, these sins of Israel 
are repetitiously repeated over and over again in this book, right? God had, had banished them because of their politics and because of their religion. Israel, Israel wanted all the blessings of the covenant that came from obeying God. They just didn't want to obey God. Can that ever happen? Can someone, does anybody ever say, I want a miserable life? No, no, they, they don't say that. They say, I want a blessed life apart from God. They say, I want a blessed life without God. So we try new politics, new charismatic leaders, new religious activities, new, new lucky rabbit's foot. They try to emulate the failure of the nations around them. And they look, well, that's good for them. All right, those new fertility gods, let's add those to ours. New type of gods. You know, up until about the 19th century, there were no atheistic nations. Atheist nations had the common sense to need and see a sense of authority outside of themselves. Oftentimes they made it up. Not until really 19, 18th century France, 20th century Russia, Cuba for the last 50 years. Fidel Castro dies two days ago, right? Nations have always had the sense to try and evoke something outside of themselves. They just don't want to obey the true God. Very few atheistic nations in the world. Now, here's the seismic rift that I talked about. Next verse. Here's the watershed. Here's the Hacksaw Ridge that they failed to, to take. The continental divide. Verse 5. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence. This is the sin of Jeroboam. All right, turn to 1 Kings 12. Let's look at this. So turn in your Bible to 1 Kings 12. This is what you should teach to your kids. What we're going to see here in Jeroboam the first, right after Sol Solomon. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes the two tribes of the south, and Jeroboam takes the ten tribes of the north. We are going to see him do this. As you read, here's what you're going to read. We're going to start in verse 28 you're going to see Jeroboam set up a theological iron curtain. Um, this is a, a theological bay of pigs, all right, an embargo. He's going to, in order to protect his political constituents, he's going to give political expediency by creating a place of worship so they don't have to go all the way south to Rehoboam in Jerusalem. He doesn't want his people going down there and being won by Rehoboam. He wants to keep his political power, so he sets up a place of worship in Dan, that's far south, and Bethel, that's far north. And so they, he's going to set up his own priesthood. He's going to set up his own altars. He's going to set up his own sacrifices. He's going to set up his own festivals. He's going to set it all up, designer religion. Why, though? It's kind of a bizarro Israel. It looks like Israel, but it's the opposite of it. And he sets it up for political expediency. Now, what he's going to do... As you're going to read it, he's going to make a golden calf. Now, why a golden calf? Does that sound familiar? <clears throat> Moses, Mount Sinai, two years into the wilderness, he goes up to get the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Excuse me. Aaron fail, falls to the pressure of the majority of the nation, and they want to make a calf out of gold, so he does it. <clears throat> and they call it Yahweh who led you forth. Jeroboam's going to call these golden calves and Dan and Bethel, Yahweh who led you forth. There's Yahweh. And at first, it's meant to cause worship. But they eat and they drink and they get around it and they have a festival in, at, in, the, in the story from the book of Exodus. And they eat and drink and they go down in that, but then they rise up in great sexual immorality. They start having an orgy around the calf because that's what animals do. The golden calf right, has, has no sexual standard of purity, and they ended up just like the calf, like animals. I get this picture every time we, we go out working cows with our uh, cutting and our horse showing that we do. Those animals act like animals. Doesn't matter, male, female, male, family, female, female, they just, they act like animals. And in the case of Moses coming down, what he comes down, he sees is a great big orgy. Now, what did Moses do there at the bottom of Mount Sinai? Do you remember? He takes their golden calf 
He grinds it up, destroys it, burns it, turns it to ash, takes the ash of the golden calf, throws it out over the water, and then makes the Israelites drink up that gold dust water. Now, if you know gold, gold's an emetic. It makes you puke. It's a strong emetic. He wanted them to see that what they did, God pukes up. It is disgusting to him. He dealt with it right then, not Jeroboam. Jeroboam doesn't deal with it. It isn't dealt with for 20 kings worth. Moses dealt with it right then. Jeroboam did not. So let's look at this. All right. 1 Kings 12, 28. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the lands of Egypt. He set one up in Bethel far north, the other in Dan, far south. Now this thing became a sin, verse 30, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses, tabernacles on high places. He made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. So he had two different tabernacles and he had two different priesthood. How do you become a priest of Levi? How do you become a Levitical priest? You're born into it. You're born of the tribe of Levi. How do you become a Jeroboamic priest? All right? Well, you, you get online, you fill out a form, right? And they mail you a certificate. That's it. Matter of fact, to be a northern priest, all you have to have is loyalty to the political system. That's all you have to have. Okay, verse 32, Jeroboam then instituted a feast. Well, the Jews had Passover. This guy invents his own. In the eighth month, on the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah, he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. There's the thing you should underline. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. When you read that, if you really know your Old Testament, that is the wrong month for the feast, for the calendar. According to God's law, the, the calendar month of the Jews began the month they came out of Egypt. He changes the calendar. This Jewish calendar year prescribed by God, he's, in his designer religion, he forgets, he ignores the historical foundation of the nation, and he goes the way of his own special interests. His own priests, his own altar, his own tabernacle, his own sacrifices, his own feasts, his own calendar, his own Passover. It's a bizarro Israel. You, you know what that's from, the phrase, you know, bizarro, bizarro Superman? I'm, am I, this is a younger generation, guy like bizarro SpongeBob? What do I have to say? I don't know. Do y'all remember bizarro Superman? He was the mirror image of Superman, but the exact opposite of Superman. This is bizarro Israel. Nobody wants to be atheistic. You've got to have some religious system, some sense of authority, so Jeroboam invents his own. Now, 1 Kings 13, God in his mercy sees all this, and he sends a man of God. He sent a prophet. The government will not call the child of God to obedience. The child of God has to call the government to obedience. That's the only way it works. Child of God is the conscience of rulers. It's never, worked, it's never worked the other way. So here he comes from Judah, from the south. Why? Because they're still, they're still in the covenant. They're still in good relationship to God in the south. Verse 1, now behold, there was a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. There's the unifying factor. Why from the south? Why from Judah? Because they still believe the Bible. And this man comes with the Bible. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. He cried, the man of God cried against the altar. Notice he doesn't cry against Jeroboam. He cries against Jeroboam's ideology, against his theology. By the word of the Lord and said, O altar, O altar. He cries against the altar. This man's invention of his own access to God. We don't, we don't see that in our culture, do we? A thousand ways to get to God. He cries, there's only one way to God, and y'all have gone a different way. Your ideology is wrong. O altar, O altar, says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born in the house of David, Josiah by name. There will come a king of Judah. He remembers the Davidic covenant. He will come out of the, the, the south, 
And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of high places. This happened in history. Josiah, this great godly eight-year-old king, King Josiah, when he grows up, he sacrifices these false priests on their false altar. All who follow him, all who follow the altars, all who follow the festivals. Verse 3, then he he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart and the ashes which are on it shall be poured. In other words, if you don't get this slaughter of these false priests as a sign, the, the altar itself will be broke and literally the ashes of the fat will fall down. Verse 4, now when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. Now stop, don't read the rest. This is classic throughout all history. No ruler will allow a system to exist next to him, near to him, that condemns him. Either the king will repent or the prophet will die. This happened in Hitler's day, in Stalin's day. This is what Fidel Castro did. This happened with Chairman Mao. It doesn't, our country is really the only exception You know why our country is the exception? Because of a governing ideology. We aren't great because of democracy or a constitution. We're great. America works because of the ideology undergirding our constitution. Our constitution is is littered with language of a creator God who is sovereign. And who gives, in in creating men and women in his image, he gives men and women inalienable rights. See, our country works not because of a constitution, but because of what's behind a constitution. God, a a sovereign God who is the standard of all truth. Anybody want to guess what the next verse says? When you stretch out a hand against God's man, but his hand which he stretched out against him dried up so that he could not draw it back. That's a sign. This is what happens when you reach your hand out against God, his word, his people. You get a nub. The altar was also split, verse 5. The king said to the man of God, oh, he got the king's attention now. Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and it became as it was before. God is a good God. I would not have done that. (laughs) I'd have let him have his nub. God's a good God. All right, so go back to Hosea. That's the seismic rift that occurred that was never healed That's the hacksaw ridge that was never taken. Look at verse 6. Chapter 8 of Hosea, verse 6. For from Israel is even this, a craftsman has made it, so it is not God. It is not God. The calf was man-made, so like the dynasties were man-made, the religion was man-made, it was was not of God. That's the equation. Anything of man is not of God if it comes from man. Look at the rest of verse 6. Surely the calf of Samaria, like Mount Sinai, surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. Now, it says in Hebrew, it says splinters. It's the only time in all your Bible this word is used. So kind of the idea was that this wasn't like Aaron's calf was pure gold. This calf is wood covered in gold. And it would be destroyed and it would be created into splinters. Uh, To put it in our terms, we might say, play now, you're going to pay later. You're going to reap what you sow. All right, so this seismic rift, this seismic shift was 1 Kings chapter 12, where 80% of the nation was never recovered, never seen again. Crazy. Great story. Verse 7. Teach, by the way, parents, teach that to your kids. You're not going to see cartoons of that or movies of that, but that is as almost as often repeated the sin of Jeroboam as the exodus out of Egypt. Verse 7. This is a familiar, one of the most familiar verses in all your Bible. Ready? For they sow the wind and they reap a whirlwind. Have you ever said that? They say it's top 10 verses quoted by lost people, by outsiders. Um, It's the idea of, of unintended consequences. Um, it's what we mean by it is uh, consequences are more severe than you expected. We talk about, we use this verse in terms of bad risk management, poor work ethic, unfortunate decisions, poor planning in general. But the context of this is different. 
In this context, context, it means this. We think we can weather life without God's help. But when we, when we start things rolling, we end up creating a hurricane force of grief for ourselves. That's what that means. This was literally fulfilled, by the way. All right, look at the rest of this. The standard grain has no heads, it yields no grain, yet it yields strangers would swallow it up. The 10 tribes have disappeared from the scene of, he- of history. They're gone. The lost 10 tribes are gone. They've been swallowed up. This phrase here, it's standing grain has no heads, it yields no grain. Um, grain without head become, uh, doesn't yield bread. I like that translating. Translation, grain without head doesn't yield bread. The, the, it comes up, but there's no seed. Unintended consequences. So we've gone into the second image. The second image is of a wrathful wind. Whereas the wind is an illustration at the day of Pentecost of the spirit blowing in and the wind of God's heart and the wind of worship. You, you see language of wind and worship. Here it's a whirlwind. Which one do you want? Do you want the, I actually want whichever one the Lord wants for me. I either want the whirlwind to blow away my false hopes so that I can deal with real hope. So that I can see a a harvest wind that will create true hope in my life. But if I have a choice, I want the wind of harvest. How does God deal with false hopes, false assumptions? He either sends a harvest wind or a tornado if you have false hopes. There's a story that goes with this unintended consequences of Sir Robert Watson Watt. You You know who he is? He is the inventor of the radar. As the story goes, legend has it, he gets pulled over for speeding and gets arrested because he was speeding so far. And he says to the police officer, um, allegedly he said this, had I known what you were gonna do with it, I would have never invented it. (laughs) And then shortly after he wrote this poem, pity Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of his radar plot. And this with others I could mention, a victim of his own invention. This is how God often works in your life. He says, my will be done, my will be done. You say to him, no, my will be done, my will be done. He says, okay. You do it to your kids. You say, okay, you want your will? You're gonna have unintended consequences. You reap the wind, you're gonna, you sow the wind, you're gonna reap a whirlwind. Verse eight, Israel is swallowed up in this. Again, literally occurred. They are now among the nations Israel's efforts were devoured by foreigners like a vessel in which no one delights. Do you have a pottery that leaks? You have a bucket that leaks? You have something cracked? That's what this is. Israel has become a broken pot, a leaky jug, an unreliable vessel with no ascetic beauty. They're not even pretty. You know, rebellion cheapens your life, makes you unuseful. Their compromise had so cheapened them that they were of no value to the community of nations around them. Nobody feared them. Nobody courted them. Nobody wanted to be Israel. That is not how a child of God is meant to be. You are meant to be winsome. People are meant to want to be like you. Verse 9 explains their cheapness. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey. We, our neighbors, I told you, they added a donkey um, to the field. They actually put it in the field right next door. Wendy goes up to feed the, the horses and the, they put the donkey right next to that pen where we feed the horse and they were, the horse is just running everywhere. That donkey drives them crazy. Donkey's not doing anything. Donkey's just sitting there. But for some reason, a coyote, a horse, a goat, they see a donkey and they go crazy because of the wildness of it. And this idea, it's the people have become stupid, like a stupid donkey. They're actually very much alone. They went to these other nations and they've become... Uh, Enamored by them, verse 9, all alone, Ephraim has hired lovers. She is like a dumb animal that's lost her way in the wilderness, and she's actually all alone. You think those people at the bar are your friends? You're a fool. You think that person you're having an affair with really loves you? You're a fool. You're like a dumb donkey, this text says. When you go after false lovers, false leaders, false religions, it makes you turpid, makes you dull. 
Verse 10, even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the kings of princes. More reaping and sowing here. Israel had forsaken her God and now she's gonna be forsaken by her allies. Verse 11, since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning. So the popular idea here is in the, in the sin of Jeroboam is, hey, if Jerusalem in one altar is good, why not three altars? The popular idea is if the Lord was pleased with the sacrifice of one altar, how about many different altars? The multiplication of altars all throughout the Old and the New Testament is actually a, an act of defiance. It's an act of rebellion. There's one altar of worship. They have become altars here of sinning for him. So the altar's motivated by sin. The sin or the rebellion of these multiple altars is the sin of self-reliance. It's the sin, as we're going to see now, of neglecting God. God says it. If he says it, don't you think he means it? Especially if he repeats it over and 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 over. And then you think, ah, he doesn't really mean it. Verse 12, though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts in my law. They have regarded it as a strange thing. They were favored with God's law, but they had turned from it. Israel was without excuse. Israel's sin was not ignorance of God's law. It was neglect of God's law to the point where it became a strange thing. It's a sad commentary on the condition of Israel. It's a good thing we don't see this in our culture. Heaven forbid that biblical truth in our culture would be odd Biblical morality would be odd. Oh, heaven forbid. Verse 13, two more verses. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and they eat it. When they go to these fake false altars of Jeroboam the first, all they do, they have a bunch of barbecue. That's all they do. They just eat the meat. The sin here is of self-sufficiency. Their offering were no more than barbecue but the Lord has taken no delight in them. The consistent teaching of, teaching of scripture is that God is not pleased with mere religious ritual. Matter of fact, it, it, it really rubs them wrong. When you have mere religious ritual and there's no meaning to it, it actually goes against the grain of God's desire. But the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity. They don't remember him, but he's gonna remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. Here's the punishment. They will return to Egypt. I don't think an actual captivity in Egypt is in view because we haven't seen that in history. I think the idea is that this is Egypt here is a symbol of bondage. You recognize that when the 10 tribes get kicked out of Israel by Assyria and the two tribes by Babylon, they have now been kicked out of more countries on this planet than any other nation. That's the discipline of God. He's not done with them. We have tons of prophecy toward the nation of Israel yet to be fulfilled. Matter of fact, 40% of your Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. So God's not done with them. But in this case, man, this, this is punishment. God is a good daddy. This is what you do when the teenage boy stiffens his neck. You go say, go, go packing. Go find your own food and your own job. Verse 14, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, false security. Judah, Judah, oh man, now we got Judah. Isn't that interesting? Every chapter, Judah gets invented, brought back into the story. Judah's great in the south, but they're not, they're not out of the crosshairs. Just takes them a little longer to go south. They too need the new, new deal. They don't need the old deal. Old deal failed them. They need the new deal. But Judah has multiplied fortified cities as well. How does, how does God deal with false security in your life? When you've propped yourself up on a 401k, when you've propped yourself up on a big Christmas with lots of stuff, when you propped yourself up on a nice house, nice car, or you've got security and little retail therapy on a Black Friday, what does he do? He sends a fire. But I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. This is what Jesus talked about in the New Testament when he said, the only man in all the New Testament that God calls a fool is a man who says, I have many barns for many years. I will make more barns so I could store more stuff. And Jesus says, you fool. Tonight, your barns will be destroyed and your life will be taken from you by fire. So the question of this third image, like the first two, is do you want the consuming fire or the redeeming fire? 
Consuming fire or redeeming fire? I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume. Wow. You know, my question is, why wait for the eagle, the whirlwind, and the fire? Embrace it if it comes. If your life needs to have all of its false securities, false leaders, false hopes cut out from underneath you in order for you to be real, then bring it. You know, I prayed that for my life. I prayed that for your life. Do whatever it takes to make us real, to make us honest, to have sincere spirituality. And in this text, the idea is it's better to be in exile in Assyria than a prostitute in Palestine. Gomer and Hosea, this grand epic story of unfaithful Israel and the unfailing love of, of God means that God will do what God will do. The question for you this Christmas, all year long, Jesus polarizes. So the question for you is which way you're going to go? Are you going to embrace the will of God, the word of God, through seeing life through the, the eagles, right, overwatch? Or are you going to have to be overrun? Which one do you want? Overwatch or overrun? We have a choice between overrunning God's direction and having God perform overwatch for us. Right? There's no imperative. It's just a question. What's your Christmas going to be like? What's this year going to be like? Are you going to be a worshiper, a seeker, or are you going to be a consumer, overrun by all sorts of anxieties, all sorts of problems, all sorts of materialism? Let's pray. Father, I believe our generation needs to hear this. Why, why did you permit Israel to be judged by wicked Israel? It's because you love your people. Love always disciplines to make the child better. It is better to be in exile in Assyria than to be a hooker in Jerusalem. The hand of chastening is the hand of love, and it is the father correcting the son. It's not punishment of a criminal. In the New Testament and the Old Testament, the backslider is always disciplined. And that is what Israel was, a backslider. Christians who break their vows before you, Lord, they do not lose their salvation, of course, but they do lose their joy, they lose their power, they use their, lose their usefulness, they lose their intelligence many times, they become worthless pottery and stupid donkeys. That's how I am. I am dull when I am running from you. And I must, you must discipline me. That's how you work in my life. And I want that. I don't want to stay dull in my thinking. I want to be on fire for you. I want to have your wind of harvest for me. I want to be that eagle to be a part of your plan, to be used. So what's the message? I believe it's that we have a choice between being overrun by your, overrunning your direction or having you perform overwatch. And that's what I want. Overwatch my family, this church family, this season as we go and as we're used. In Jesus' name, amen.